Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 142 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by author, editor, and music journalist, Paul DeNoyer. His interviewees have ranged from Madonna to Pavarotti, David Bowie to Mick Jagger, nearly everyone with a strong connection to the Beatles, not least Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. And of course, interviews with Paul Weller, interviews during the jam, the Style Council, solo periods, in publications such as NME, The Hit Magazine, Mojo, The Word. So his career began on NME. He was in the launch teams of magazines Q, Mojo, Heat and The Word. He edited Q and he was the founding editor of Mojo Magazine as well. This is an absolute absolute corker. Let's get into it. Paul DeNoyer, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to having you on the podcast here because we're going to dig into so many memories, the Jam, the Style Council, Paul Weller Solo. We're talking NME, Q Magazine, RIP, Mojo Magazine, and so much more. But let's kick off. I think much like Mr. Weller, I reckon your love of music starts with the Beatles. Would would that be fair? Uh, Yes, that's exactly uh, the case. I was about seven or, or something, I suppose. And of course, I was living in Liverpool, so I was right at the, in the middle of this pop music revolution, and it was a great, uh, it was, it was, it was a great source of excitement to everybody in the, in the school, and everybody knew this band was local. They talked like we did, um, and they were just the greatest thing. It was the first pop music I ever listened to, as opposed to, I'd heard pop music before that, you know, there was, I guess, it was Cliff Richard and Adam Faith and people like that, but the first music that I sat up and paid attention to was um, those first Beatles uh, singles. And a lot of people have talked about the jazz being a schoolboy band and these people then have those connections with the jam 45 years later because the band existed for their school life was that true of you and the beatles then were they like literally your school years were that band yeah i mean it it was a very fortunate time to have come across them really because the very first beatles songs they were so straightforward i mean i was i was only a young child and they were kind of a follow-on from the nursery rhymes i'd listened to a few years before that you know they were i mean now we we all know those beatles songs they're not quite as simple as they seem because they're very they're very they're actually very uh, sophisticated harmonically there's all kinds of clever stuff going on there but on the surface you know they're easy songs for a seven-year-old child to latch onto. and then as i grew older into adolescence uh, the beatles own music was growing much more mysterious, I suppose, enigmatic along the way, uh, which which kind of mirrored my um, maturity into uh, into teenage years, I suppose. So I was kind of going along on this journey with them for that uh, nine or ten years or whatever it was, it, but it lasted. So it was a very fortuitous time to be growing up, I think, with the Beatles um, playing in the background. Now, this connection with that band, and particularly Paul McCartney, continues, and we'll dig into some of that stories later on, because I'm, I'm sure Mr. Weller would love that, because he's such a massive McCartney fan, and that influences 
him so much, particularly the beginning when he was a bass player when the jam first started out and all that. But let's talk about this move to London. So when you were 18, I think it was, you moved to London. And initially it wasn't about journalism, was it? No, I, I, I always had this idea that I wanted to um, go down and see London for myself. And um, the opportunity came when I got a place at the London School of Economics. So uh, I just turned 18 when I came down and um, it was just great. You know, I mean, what I was really interested in was the music and the bands would come along to the to the LSC. Um, I, I would go down to uh, see bands at the Marquee or whatever. So that was a real thrill. And it was it was just shortly after I left the LSC that I was still in London, not quite sure what I wanted to do. But that was when the NME advertised for um, new staff writers. I didn't get that job. Uh, they gave the job to Julie Birchall and, and Tony Parsons, actually. This is at 76, the time of punk. But what they said to me was, um, you know, why don't you uh, stick around and you might be able to do some freelance work for us. So that's what I did. A couple of years after that, 79 or so, they gave me a staff job. So that was really the beginning of my my full-time career. Right, okay. And this was the time Neil Spencer would have been editor at the time, would that be right? Uh, Yes, Uh, Neil had just taken over from um, Nick Logan when I was starting to write, so Neil was the first editor. It was Neil who gave me my job. Right, okay. And Neil, there's connections with Mr. Weller through, you know, so much and Red Wedge and all that, but um, I read the other day, I found a nice little quote from Paul when he was talking about Enemy, and he said, when I was a kid, the Enemy was the Bible. In Woking, you you got it on a Thursday, I'd rush out, read it cover to cover, even the articles about bands I didn't like. And that's true of so many people with the enemy this this weekly newspaper music newspaper was people's bible it was such an important thing wasn't it yeah well it certainly had been for me when i was growing up just like paul i mean i'd rush out and get the uh, the paper on the thursday i'd get the others as well there was this, um, the melody maker and sounds and a couple of others but the enemy was the one uh, that was, was the main one and it seemed to have the most authority as well as being um having a kind of sense of humor and a, just a style of its own which was very attractive to a lot of us and um so obviously of course to, to land a job on this I paper itself was um, it was it was really was a you know the dream job for me. It's funny because even for me, in as a teenager in what ninety ninety one, I was the same. It was you know it was, I was buying Melody Maker and Enemy every week, consuming all the music that was in it and stuff. So that still continued, and it's a shame that's not the situation now. And we'll talk about music press and where it is now because obviously you've been involved in so many magazines um, and launches and all that over the years. In terms of Mr. Weller, let's look at the Jam. Obviously, his first iteration. Can you remember when you first saw them? I can't actually because at that stage, this is the late seventies. I was going out literally every single night firstly for my own pleasure because that's what I wanted to do and then secondly it became part of my job really to just to keep going out so I honestly can't remember um but I certainly saw them and um the damned and the sex pistols and the clash and all those group Elvis Costello everybody who was coming through and that it was a fantastic period you know all these people were brand new or they seemed brand new uh, as far as we were, were and uh, they all came through within this very compressed um space of time didn't they between you know the damned and the pistols had their first singles out in 76 but by 79 you know a good 20 or 30 new acts had established themselves and um you know they're all pretty much household names to this day uh, mm. including, uh, not least paul and uh, through his different um, career stages wasn't it fantastic you say that like i was out seeing bands every night that you could do that they were all the venues and the acts and, and a really exciting time for the new music but for young people you know that this was music that was aimed at you yeah it was it, it was again i mean i felt i was just very lucky to have been in that place at that time you know um, the Pistols I saw at the 100 Club and that was I know lots of people say they saw Sex Pistols at the 100 Club but <laughs> I, yeah, 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 yeah. I think the whole of London was like that. I know. <laughs> but uh, I honestly do. It's just an accident because because I was... I've, 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 I've got the lie detector on, you know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, one night I was going to... Uh, the, there, was, there was a band called Rugalator who were more of a pub rock than punk rock kind of group. They were, they were very good, but they were due to play the 100 Club. And so I went out to see them and um, lo and behold, they cancelled and... Um, <laughs> At first, I thought I'd heard of the Sex Pistols. Neil Spencer actually had done a review of them in the um, NME. So I thought, okay, well, I'll stick around. You know, I've got nothing to lose. So I did see the Sex Pistols. Um, the audience wasn't punk. The audience was mostly I got the impression the audience were mainly Scandinavian tourists. Um, it was the middle of summer. There wasn't really a punk rock movement at that point in 1976. That developed a bit later. But of course, the Pistols were extraordinary. And I went back and saw them again a few weeks later. And um, So I suppose I was just attracted to them for all the reasons that um, that Paul was, I guess. Uh, he was 
just a little bit younger than me. And of course, he was already, he was an accomplished musician. I wasn't, I was never, I was never a musician, um, never had ambitions in that direction. I just wanted to, to write. But uh, the impact of the Sex Pistols, above all, was just, um, it was a once in a lifetime kind of experience. I in doing research for this show, um, there was a, there was a, um, a line I came across from you where you were talking about the song In the City. So this is the Jam's debut single. And this was in a book that you were writing uh, a little while back now, which was all about um, London and music and the connections. And you said about the, in the city that it was um, all the pent up sense of possibility that London can present to the energetic incomer compressed inside two minutes 20 seconds and I was like I love that line <laughs> that's really nice sums it up perfectly but the power of that first single um, I mean it's an incredible first single isn't it yes it is um, but, uh, so I call the book uh, In the City it's a kind of little homage to uh, to Paul and, and the jam and something I, I did find I had in common with him in a way was that um, even though he's from southeast. He felt like he wasn't a Londoner. He felt like he was co- just as I did. I mean, I was coming from you know from up north, from two hundred miles away, and I I really took to London. It really excited me. It lived up to all of my expectations. And it was funny that Paul went through a similar kind of experience. Uh, for him, London was a, a faraway place. It was nothing like um, Woking, and for him, it was full of possibilities. And he just like I did, you know, he dreamed of going there one day and. Um, and making it his home, and of course, he's, I think he still lives in the uh, in the city even to this day. So we both—that's something we talk about over the um, the years, really. This um, you know, this excitement that we still felt about uh, about London and the possibilities that it seemed to it always seemed to offer. There are many connections with Paul that we'll dig into that with some, <laughs> with some good stories of life on the road, right? So let's talk about that first interview with the Jam. Wait, can you remember when you first connected with Paul and met up with him and and um, and interviewed yeah, him? Yeah, I'm not I'm not positive. I'm not sure when I first met him. He did come into the enemy office quite a lot. The first time I interviewed him, anyway, I was sent on the road with the Jam. They were playing a music festival in Finland, big outdoor festival somewhere. So I spent a couple of days with him and got to know. Him and you know and the other and the other guys in the band and John Weller and Kenny Wheeler, all these people uh, that you will know uh, very well. Um, I hung around with that. Uh, Petty Smith was my photographer from the enemy. He was also oh wow, brilliant, very close. She was very close to Weller and and the Jam. Took lots and lots of pictures of them, you know, for their own purposes as well as for editorial um, assignments. That was a really fascinating, great to um, spend some time with them. I liked Paul very much on a personal level. He was just a bit of a bugger about doing interviews. You know, <laughs> I mean, he, he was like this for years, years after. He's not like that now, I don't think. But he's happy to talk. He's not like he was a recluse or anything. He wasn't standoffish or surly. He was, he was pretty friendly. We got on. I thought we got on pretty well. They just didn't want me to sit down and turn on that tape recorder and do a formal interview. You know, he was quite phobic about doing interviews, and he kept right. putting it off and off and off. And um, we finally got some. They done it the last minute. I don't think it was a brilliant interview, but it was great. Uh, it was a great, just a great experience for me. I read somewhere. <laughs> I read somewhere that this is the tour where this is the first time that you saw a woman take her clothes off for money. Is that right? <laughs> Can we talk about this? If we must. (laughs) I tell you what, though, it gives you a good insight into Paul and his relationship with Jill and and the band and all that at the time as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was just a bizarre thing. It was the hotel that we were all staying in, in a provincial town in Finland somewhere. People were having a dinner and having drinks. And then the lights went down, and a stripper came in, came on, and I thought, "This is strange." You know, we had funny ideas about Scandinavia in uh, in England in those days. You know, I thought this must be what people do in Scandinavia. <laughs> <laughs> well, just the evening entertainment, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was it was just really bizarre and wasn't it the theme tune to clockwork orange as well is that right right. there's this really icy chilly synth music by uh wendy carlos Uh, it's a really spine chilling piece of music and she was doing this slow routine to uh to this you know the least appropriate kind of music and um, the thing of paul is that um he was a very uh he was quite a serious young man at that point I suppose I probably was as well, but he didn't like this turn of events at all. He was sitting there with Jill and um, they just looked at each other and shook their heads and they got up and walked out. I think I'd probably stayed, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I bet Kenny <laughs> I was enjoying the novelty. Around, yeah. I was enjoying the sheer, the sheer strangeness and the novelty of the whole thing. <laughs> Paul didn't approve of it uh, uh, at all, and um, quite rightly, I suppose. 
<laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Um, now, obviously, the jam become huge. We're talking number one singles, number one albums, all that as well. And it'll be good to talk about that progression from In The City through to the band that they became and the legacy that there is now. Because, you you know, you interviewed them so many times. You, you know, you wrote reviews. And there's there a wonderful review I found of Sound Effects where you wrote that that album was a brave departure and an earnest effort to break new ground. You said Sound Effects is the jam today and that's what we need most of all. There's new songs represent a band that's as vital and as capable of anger as ever. Whilst they may not put themselves in the punk camp, they never lost that kind of punk sensibility, that punk ethos, I guess. One of the things I, I really liked about the jam in the early days was that they'd taken what seemed to me the important thing about punk whilst preserving their own identity. They weren't uh, just another identikit punk group trying to sound like uh, the Sex Pistols and trying to dress like The Clash or whatever. You know, the jam had their own vision of, of things. But what they took from punk was that impatience and that urgency, um, that uh, love of getting your point across as quickly as quickly as possible and then getting out and on to the next thing. And um, I admired that in, in the band. And that's right. I remember now that the time that I did go on the road with them, they were about to, uh, they were finishing off uh, the sound effect album. Right. That's right. Start was the single at the time. And Paul was clearly going into a kind of 1966 um, phase in his head. You know, he was wearing, um, I remember him wearing a um, silk cravat, very lovely 60s um, dark suit. I always admired his dress sense. I mean, I thought, um, I thought he was he was so brilliant at that. But um, it was it was clear from hearing of the demo the, the, or the the early tracks for sound effects it was clear it was clear that he was really pushing against the boundaries of what he'd achieved with the jam previously and i guess with hindsight it wasn't too much of a surprise that he wanted to break out of the jam um, as he did a couple of years after that i wasn't entirely surprised but I, I admired his bravery in doing so i mean imagine walking away from a band like the jam who were at the absolute peak of their success you know the, the bottle it requires to to make a career decision like that but he's had that all along one of the things i rate him so highly for is he had that bravery that the Beatles had and, and Bowie had and Dylan has had. I mean, these people will always drop everything that they're known for, everything that their success has been based upon. They'll simply drop it and do something utterly new the next time, mm. right? as if they're willing to risk everything, you know, alienate all their fans. And of course, those people with the Beatles would always get away with it. Bowie didn't always get away with it. Dylan doesn't always get away with it. But I guess you could say that Paul didn't entirely get away with it all, all the time. You know, people, it was very hard to keep up with Paul. And, and it was only to be expected, I suppose, that with each twist and turn that he took creatively, he wasn't going to bring everybody along with him. Not everybody could stay on board. It hasn't done too bad, has it? <laughs> no, that's true. I was thinking the other day, actually, how, um, like, what must he have been going through his head the morning of that announcement? You know, the morning of him telling his dad or telling the band. Me, I'd be like, no, nah, nah. <laughs> just, you could have bottled it, right? It's, it's such a huge, momentous decision to make. But he obviously yeah. he went, you know, went that way. But yeah, I wonder what was going through his head the morning of. And or was he just kind of, you know, this is the right decision. We've done it. Or were there nerves? Was there doubt? I don't know. I'd, I can't wait to have a conversation about it. But um, the Style Council, obviously, you know, when we're talking about Chameleon and, and the kind of changing moods and the changing um, styles and all that, I mean, the Style Council were very much that band. And you were there along that journey as well. You interviewed Paul during that time too. I did, yeah. This this time um, I was... Um I was working for a short-lived magazine called The Hit, and for the launch, Paul had done a cover session, photo session of himself uh, as a boxer. Oh, right. I've not seen that. Okay. You haven't seen it? No, oh, I've not I, seen that. I must send you it. He's got all these all these kind of Lonsdale, I mean, of course, he looks immaculate. He's got all these Lonsdale um, pieces of kit on him and gloves and things, and um, I'm not sure what the purpose of that was, but it was... <laughs> <laughs> but it made for a good anyway they they sent me over to uh, australia that's right he and the sour council had just done a, some dates in japan and now they're in uh, melbourne uh, waiting for their equipment uh, to be sent on to australia for that leg of the tour and um spent it was a lot i spent about a week with them and um once again you know it was nice to hang around with paul and deal with it. nick was great and steve white uh, very easy people to get along with you know it was, it was very pleasant except it was, it was a very unhappy time because um, he was out there with Jill Price, who I also knew quite well, I suppose, in those days. But their relationship was coming to the end, and, and simultaneously his relationship with DC Lee, who was now in the lineup of the Star Council, was coming together, you know, and there was a, an 
awkward overlap. And it was it was it was uncomfortable to be around because um, the atmosphere within the within the camp within around the band was um, I think very tense, actually very subdued. It was just an awkward time emotionally for for him. And um, but anyway, we did a. Paul being Paul, he was always putting off the interview. And um, I mean, <laughs> we, were, we were scheduled to, um, that's right, he, they, they planned a kind of promotional exercise. We were in Melbourne, and the, the, then they were going to go on to um, Sydney. And they arranged to hire some carriages of train, rather than just flying up to from Melbourne, Sydney, which anybody else would do. The Star Council decided we'll hire part of a train and we'll you know get the press along the tv stations we'll set up some equipment we'll have jam sessions and all of that and so um it took 13 hours this um this uh, <laughs> train journey i kept saying oh, paul this, this is great you know but you know when we get to sydney i go home and you know we've got to do this interview you know i've come all this way and in the end he did very begrudgingly uh, and it wasn't again it wasn't a Brilliant interview, but uh, we, we got it. We got it done anyway. And astonishing, uh, astonishing experience to see the Star Council playing. It was like um, it's actually like a scene in uh, Hard Day's Night. You know, the Beatles film with the traveling uh, in, a, in a train carriage, and um, uh, and that music kicks in. It was maybe that was part of Paul's um, thinking at that uh, at that time. The Star Council were great. They were pretty much at the peak, I suppose, at that stage. Was it just after our favourite shop? Yeah, it would have been around that time. And then Paul hasn't been to Australia very often, so it was you know if you're a, if you're a Weller fan, it's not like you're getting to see him on every tour, is it? So, and I think that was the only time the Star Council played Australia. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, yeah, probably was. Um, I mean, as I say, there was some kind of personal tension going on in in Paul's private life. But in career terms, the Style Council had just about um, won everybody over, I think, at that stage. Um, I mean, it wasn't to last. I mean, the career did sort of tail off a little bit thereafter. But at that point, I thought they were just, um, you know, firing on all cylinders, really. Tell me about the argument you had with Paul around that time. Can you remember? Did I? Um, I read that he apologised to you for an argument that you were, I think you said uh, you apparently had. Not, I don't think you can remember it, but <laughs> it was something about you recommending country music. Oh, yes, I remember that. I don't know if it was an argument, really. So, Paul is, as, as you know, he can be very, very intense, you know, on the subject of music, particularly in those days when he was very young. And for some reason, I just started to get uh, interested in uh, country music. I'd grown up with country in the background. A lot of my dad's generation in Liverpool, those working class guys all, all love Johnny Cash and Hank Williams, that kind of thing. And you know, Liverpool dockers, they always, always love country music. So I thought, well, I've got to take it seriously. I've got to listen. And I started to get into country music. I met Paul, actually. I just bumped into him on a, on a tube on the Victoria line and um, chatting about what we're listening to. <laughs> he was disgusted that I was listening to country music. <laughs> I said, no, you've got to take it. See, it's like, you know, it's got everything the blues music has got. It's just a, you know, different flavor. He said, no, no, he just wasn't having it. You know, you know how <laughs> he's absolutely, he was in those days, absolutely black and white in his views, you know, very dogmatic. But, you know, later on, I mean, he was, he was laughing about it later on saying, you know, if, if I didn't like something, I really, really didn't like it. Uh, and I wasn't going to give it um, the time of day. But um, that's where he stood with country music in those days. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I mean, that, compared to some of the journalists and some of the critics that he went for that is quite light if we're talking about arguments right some, some of them were much more extreme than that <laughs> oh yeah there was no there was no i don't remember having any kind of personal problem with it at any stage one thing that's come up quite a bit on the podcast is the um, the culture of the bands and i know that paul has knocked the booze on the head in recent years but some of these times with the jam or the, or the style council or mr weller were pretty boozy affairs right <laughs> and we'll talk about um i want to talk about mojo and q magazine in a second but there was this wonderful bit where paul and i think emotionally again maybe wasn't a great time because um um, he was doing. He'd just done the covers album. He was kind of trying to find his feet again as a songwriter. He wasn't overly happy with Illumination and Heliocentric. But you joined up with him in Amsterdam for what sounds like <laughs> the booziest thing I've ever I've ever heard. I think you said that it was almost a test that he'd put to journalists that year to just try to like, just drinking constantly, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was this was t- uh, 2005. He was in Amsterdam. He was remixing uh, as is now, well, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. He'd just finished um, from the floorboards up. He was. Playing that to me, and I gathered from other journalists who had who had um, met him around that same time. He did this with everybody. He, it was as if he was uh, putting you to a test. I mean, I do like a drink, but I, I'd never drunk as much as I did on that uh, that day, that day and evening and night. And um, I don't know how I ever got back. Haven't found my way back to the hotel. How <laughs> did I get back without falling into a canal? What I do remember is, is waking up. 
the next day fully dressed. I just must have just collapsed on the bed, you know, and uh, I had to just about caught the uh, plane back again. But yeah, he did like a drink in those days. Um, we both drank far, far too much and probably talked astonishing amount of rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> when did you record the interview? Was it well, presumably it was before you went on the bar? Luckily, yeah, the luckily, this, luckily this time he was far easier about uh, doing interviews. And uh, we, so we got that out the way at an early stage when we could both string um, <laughs> sentences together. <laughs> Now, when was it that you joined Q Magazine? So um, it was it was it was from right from day one, yeah. Yeah, I was on the enemy until eighty five, and then I mentioned this magazine uh, called the Hit, which um, I was in late eighty five. It only lasted for about uh, nine issues, um, nine weekly issues. But the day that that closed down, I got a phone call from Mark Allen, who I'd known for years. He was the editor of Smash Hits at that point. And he said, oh, come over and see us because we're, 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 thinking, we're thinking of a new uh, idea for a magazine. I went over and saw him and David Hepworth at a publishing company called EMA. And they told me about this idea for a new monthly rock magazine, which became Q. So I, was, I, was, I, was, I joined them as the um, deputy editor or something um, and was there in seven years. I became the editor of Q after, um, after Mark had done um, the first few years. Um, yeah, I did that for about six or seven years. It was, while I was there, I, I kind of devised the idea for what I'd like to do next. And I took that to the company and um, suggested that we start another monthly, which would be called Mojo. They liked the Mojo idea. So um, I launched I launched um, Mojo, which I'm glad to uh, glad to learn. I became a big favourite of, um, of Paul's as well. Yeah, and he's done so much. In fact, he was guest editor in, in recent right, years yeah. as well, wasn't he? But, yeah. And what was the difference? What was the ethos of Mojo that was different to Q then? Q's ethos, Q's job really was to uh, cover... I guess the albums market. It was a monthly, so it couldn't really be news driven the way that a weekly music paper was was newsy. You, you can't do that on a monthly because of the lead times and so forth. But what we could do was interview people in depth, and we tended to focus on uh, the big selling album acts of uh, of the day, um, the contemporary acts at that time would have been U2 and uh, R.E.M. and um, Madonna, Springsteen. If you could get any of these people to do an interview, stick them on the cover, that issue would sell very, very well. And that was fine, but I felt a bit locked inside the mainstream of always having to cover the album, cover the album charts. And I thought more and more people, I think, are getting interested in reissued stuff. The CD box set was coming into its own at that stage. And I thought, I think people are a lot, a lot more curious. They want to know what's going on outside of the charts. Uh, they want to know what, what music used to be around and is now becoming available again. And also what smaller kinds of acts are possibly going to be the big acts of the future. So uh, Mojo always had this double approach of uh, covering old music, but covering new underground music as well. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. All right, so it was all like almost that fanzine mentality of... of yeah, that's right. I, I, okay. I did say I'd like something to have the production values of uh, Vogue magazine, but um, but the mentality of a, of, a, right. of a fanzine. So I tried to combine those those two things, those two qualities. And obviously, sadly, Q magazine's no longer here. The summer of 2020, um, off the back of COVID, I think, was um, what killed it off. But I still, I mean, I still miss that magazine not coming through my letterbox every month. It was a fabulous publication. Yeah, yeah, it was a shame. I hadn't been working for them for a long time um, in the 2000s, Mark, Ellen and David Hepworth started another magazine called The Word. 
and uh, I did a lot of work for them, including that my infamous trip to Amsterdam with uh, <laughs> that was done for for the Word magazine, which that was very good as well. And that too bit the dust. It, it, you know, the, the climate, the, the, the whole commercial climate became very very tough for um, those kinds of magazines. Um, the internet did a lot of um, damage. Uh, advertising uh, dropped away dramatically, but Mojo is still going strong as far as I'm. Yeah, Mojo's a great, yeah, Mojo, Mojo's a, a great read, a fabulous read. So as founding editor of Mojo, 1993, it launches right at the time that Paul was back. I don't know how, I don't know how much connection you had with him in the Q days, but Mojo, I remember getting, there was a, there was a cover, it was June 1995. And I rem- honestly remember getting this magazine like it was yesterday. And you had Paul in this really cool suit on the cover, this red guitar. I mean, like you say, you know, absolutely cool as you like, wasn't it? And this would have been around the time of the release of Stanley Road. So he's properly back on top, you know, huge. You have this beautiful, lovely conversation where you're just talking about music. Yes, I remember that very well. Um, yeah, I just heard Stanley Road. It was about to come out, I think. I've said to him once or twice, I think I'm a lucky omen for him because um, whenever they send me along to do an interview, he seems to come up with the best. He seems to come up with another career highlight. You know, uh, Sound Effects was an absolute career highlight, I believe. Um, our favourite shot was the Style Council thing of the moment when I saw them, when I met them and then um, Stanley Road, you know, real, the, the abs, abs, absolute breakthrough for him on, in his solo career. I absolutely love uh, that album to this day. And he looked great. We met in um, the studio, Nomis uh, Studios, I think, in West London. And um, just, just one of those interviews that sometimes they're a real pleasure to do, you know, sometimes they're not. But um, Paul was a lot more relaxed about where he was up to with his career and very happy to do the interview, which helps. Got along good. I was always pleased with that interview. Yeah, he seemed very open at that time, was willing to talk about the split of the jam. He was willing to talk about the you know, the political side of the Style Council and how maybe that turned people off. He was able to talk about, you know, how the, the Style Council was successful overseas, but the jam weren't. All that stuff, which you hadn't heard him talk about at all, really. He, he definitely opened up in that interview. Yes, I think enough, um, what year was it, 1995? I think yeah. some time had elapsed for him to develop some perspective about his earlier career with the Jam and the Style Council. And also, you know, through the strength of records like Wildwood and Stanley Road, he really was establishing himself as a proper solo artist. You know, it's it's reminiscent, it's, it's strongly reminiscent of the individual Beatles in the 1970s. It was murder for them, you know, having been in the Beatles to try and get people to take them seriously as solo artists. You know, they were constantly having to fend off questions about the Beatles getting back together and um, tell us about the good old days, you know, and mm-hmm. whereas they simply wanted to get on with the leading the present day lives and making their own music. It was tough. McCartney, who I got to know through interviewing him very regularly, I could see this development in him. And he, this is and this is what happened with Paul. You know, he finally reached a stage where it took until the late eighties, but he finally reached a stage where he felt relaxed enough about the legacy of the Beatles to start playing a lot more Beatles music in within his set. I think he he realised he gained acceptance, he gained recognition as Paul McCartney the solo. Right. But it took, it took that long. So that would have been what? Up to when? Like Flowers in the Dirt or something like that? Exactly. exactly. It was Flowers in the Dirt. That, right. was, um, that was when um, he was going to do a world, big world tour. And uh, he hadn't played live for about 10 years at that stage. Uh, the last time he tried to play live, he got busted in um, Japan. But by 89, I think he was just a lot more confident about who, who he was and going out on tour. He was now going to play very long sets. You know, you know how long these sets he does these days. If you saw him at Glastonbury. Yeah, incredible. But he'll put in loads and loads of Beatles songs because he knows that that's what people like and they're his songs. He's got nothing to be embarrassed about, you know. He can, he can strike a balance between his own post Beatles stuff and Beatles stuff. And he's quite happy with that. And everybody else is uh, obviously more than happy to hear him play. And in the interviews as well, he'll talk about the Beatles. He'll talk about John Lennon, surprisingly, which he was very reluctant to do for a long time. I guess Paul went through a similar trajectory as well in his life. Yeah. And it was interesting, actually, that Mojo interview where he was talking about the fact that, you know, from an industry point of view, he was he was all washed up. You know, he was touting around these demos and nobody's biting it. I mean, you think about it, I mean, it's ridiculous now. What, what are we on? Like 30 years of a solo career and the, the highs that he's had and the, you know, the, even in just recent years, the incredible albums and the output. But the fact that at the end of the Star Council, the perception was that as what, a 30 year old man, he was done. Yeah. Yeah. It must have been a very tough time. I mean, I, I can thinking back, there was quite a gap. In my uh, meetings with Paul or my interviews with Paul, and I suppose that would have coincided with him going um, off the boil commercially. That's right, because I was at Q magazine. Q was quite a commercial kind of magazine. Mm. And if you weren't in the album charts, and Paul wasn't in the album charts at that stage for quite a while, then Q magazine wouldn't have been 
not interested in you, I think. Mojo was a lot more, I think, I, I wanted Mojo to be a lot more kind of broad-minded and not, you know, we're not stuck with the mainstream all the while. If people are doing interesting things, then Mojo will find time to meet them. But yes, Paul did have a period in the semi-wilderness, really. Let's talk about Amsterdam. So we, we've covered off the, the bar crawl. One of the, <laughs> one of the things that I found really interesting with this album was around this time. So this is still them working in a very analog way. Everything was all tape. We hadn't yet embraced things like Pro Tools and digital and that. And he talks in the interview, I don't know if you can remember, but he talks in the interview about the fact that he was like a proper tech Luddite. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. In those days, I used to interview, I used to record interviews on my um, iPod. You would stick a little um, microphone attachment into the iPod called an iTalk, and uh, it worked very, very well. Paul kept peering at this thing, saying, and what? Is that actually recording? And what? And it plays music as well. <laughs> I don't know how much he was he was putting on this fogey act <laughs> because it gave him, because it amused him to do so. I'm sure there was. You can't be a recording musician for as long as he had been, even in analog studios. You can't be that much of a Luddite. You know, you've got to, you've got to understand how recording equipment works and so forth. But he, d- he does like to play that part, doesn't he, sometimes in interviews. Um, yeah. Well, he talks about the internet being the devil's window. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and he would he never was, have it in his house. <laughs> yes. He was very suspicious, very suspicious of the internet. And uh, I think to this day and he's not alone in this i think he's he's very skeptical about spotify as well but that's possibly for the you know the financial aspects of spotify or yeah controversial on their amongst musicians yeah yeah absolutely and understandably so right there was a quote about the ipod where he said he said it's like a mini fridge with no fucking beers in it (laughs) (laughs) that tells you that tells you a lot about the you know the two things on paul's mind at that time you know mini bars full of beer and, uh, and uh, <laughs> suspicion of rec- new recording technology. So that quote sums up both of those aspects, I guess. You talked about McCartney, and obviously there are so many highlights um, from you and, and such a close connection where you were working really close with him, writing tour programs, all kinds of stuff, and all these conversations which you've, you've collected together in a book in recent years as well. But I wanted, one thing I wanted to talk about about Mojo was um, was David Bowie. This happened when you were editor as well. And, and didn't you get Bowie for like one whole month to be editor of Mojo? magazine with you yeah mojo has occasionally had um, guest editors paul weller did it uh, not so long ago i can't remember who else we had but bowie did it um, one year i'd left the magazine by that time but i was still writing for them and i interviewed uh, bowie i interviewed bowie quite a lot probably as often as i interviewed weller all in all but yes we did get him to guest edit and um, i think he found it quite frustrating i think i think musicians get a bit of a shock because they, they learn for the first time that's not easy <laughs> <laughs> editing, editing magazines it's really really difficult you know uh, but then you know i'm sure it's very difficult to make albums as great as paul weller makes as well so you know we each have our specialisms yeah but you've got a proper hard deadline right it's not like that can um that, that scope can't creep right it's like you know you've got no, no. you've got your release date that's coming out then and you've press, you know, press everything press is around the clock to make that happen isn't it princess deadlines are absolutely immovable no there's no there's no way around them whereas an album that can always go back a month, you know, it's not the end of the world, you know. Um, ideally, you want it out there for the time that you go on tour, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, the pressures of print world, I mean, the enemy was the worst because it was that was a weekly. I mean, obviously, daily papers have got it even harder, but they have they tend to have very, very big um, stats. Yeah. The enemy was only five, six people who were mostly stoned out of the... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> You're right. It was a miracle that they managed yeah. to produce what they did. It, it was because you were never more than five days away from the next press day. You know, yeah. five working days from the next press day. So yeah. it was a miracle of the enemy always. Uh, well, yeah, because you got to find the time to do the interviews, to write the articles, to go to the gigs that you're going to every night where you're having a great time and living your life and all that as well. There is that. And, and, and built in is the problem that you are dealing with pop stars <laughs> who are not you know, as a, as a species, they're not the world's most disciplined. Uh, they're not the world's most time conscious uh, or punctual. They're not always the most cooperative. <laughs> so you've, you, know, you, you are herding cats throughout the press day, uh, throughout the cycle of the uh, production of the magazine. So it's uh, with a huge sigh of relief that you finally sign it off uh, one night at the color at the color house. And think, thank God, and now we're going to go. So there you go again. All over again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've asked this question of a few of my guests, and I'll ask of you because you've had these connections with so many huge stars that we've talked about, people like McCartney and Bowie and Bonner, whatever, right, and Weller. What is it that they have in common? What is it that makes them have that real true star quality, do you think? Why do they stand out when others don't? The people you mentioned, and, and plenty of others as well, they've, they've got this 
talent, this you know, this God-given talent or whatever it comes from, uh, without which they wouldn't be, um, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be talking about them. But what they bring to the table themselves, I think, is self-belief. They have to take all kinds of setbacks, you know, in the early. Nearly every, they nearly all went through periods of being uh, ignored and rejected before they get the big record deal and so on. But something in them compels them to just keep going back for one more try, you know, keep knocking on doors. Um, I would find it, you know, I'm not, I'm not in this position, but it, it must be terrifying to have written a great hit single or done a great album and then to realize that you've now got to do it all over again. It's not going to sustain you for the rest of your life. Well, I mean, some people do have to settle for trading on one big hit or something, mm. but um, you know, that wouldn't be enough for somebody like Weller or McCartney or Bowie. You know, they, they've for the, their self-respect, I think, demands that they press ahead and they forge um, something new. It's an unenviable kind of pressure to have to live with. And Paul's talks about it almost being like, this is just his job. It's like what he does. And is that true of people like McCartney and that as well, do you think, where it's just like, regardless, because there will be peaks and troughs in a career. There are great, there's great works and there's works that haven't maybe connected and whatever, but ultimately they all seem to be doing it for themselves. And if people follow them on that journey, then great. It is their day-to-day job they see it that way yeah and you can you can see it in the in the, in the way that they, they keep going long after they need to you know financially and i i don't know how true this is of paul but it's certainly obviously true of somebody like mccartney that he could have given up uh, he could have retired he could have retired in 1970 actually and, and just lived the high life you know on the strength of his royalties but he was never content to do that and even now it's in his 80s and he's keep he keeps going it is it's an interesting parallel isn't it you know they are both weller and mccartney the two pauls they're both so Incredibly prolific. There's no slacking in their work rate, you know. That recent glut of Paul Weller albums and how good they were, you know, there was no falling off in the quality at all. I'm tremendously impressed by that. That must be driven by self belief and, as you say, that sense that it's their job and without, if they're not doing the job, what's their life really about? You know, I, I, I think McCartney says this quite explicitly. He just wouldn't know what else to do. He wouldn't know what to do with himself. He wasn't writing another song each day and planning another tour or um, setting up uh, album sessions. It's just, it's what he does. And he can't imagine not doing it. And it's interesting because Paul's talks himself about like almost following the McCartney model. It's back to the Beatles where even to him, like when he was releasing singles that weren't on albums, that was all the Beatles. You get a feeling where maybe wrapping up the jam was the length of time of the Beatles. And you get a sense of, well, McCartney's still doing it and he's still gigging. He's still doing new albums. Still doing new material and all that. That's yeah. the model that I'm following, you know? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think most of us think of the jam as being a very short lived phenomenon, but, you know, they had a long, they had a long pre career, didn't they? Um, they were kicking around for quite a long time before they became the jam that we knew of. So, in that sense, they probably did have a, a lifespan roughly, roughly equivalent to the Beatles, I guess, roughly anyway. After 2005, did you have any other connections with Mr. Weller since, or did you, you go, do you know what? My liver can't cope. <laughs> My liver couldn't, couldn't cope. I've never drunk anything like uh, that amount, and I, I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> not before and not since. No, I haven't. I, and Paul, I, I think, has sworn off the, uh, the booze, as far as I'm aware. I don't know whether I've even uh, met him since since then, because um, I stepped back from uh, from journalism a couple of years ago now. I don't, I'm don't. i basically re- retired now. But I still listen to music, of course. I certainly listen to um, Paul's stuff, and I'm still as deeply impressed by it as I ever have been. But I don't think that I've met him since... Um, 2005. There were a couple of other little connections where, so one of the things I've loved as well is like the liner notes that you write on albums too. And the master plan, the Oasis is one of my favorite outputs from them. I don't, you know, the B sides and all that we had, but there's also a little well of connection, right? I thought you might appreciate this. So a band called Doll by Doll. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Jackie Levin. Yeah. Well, Helen Turner is the connection. So Helen Turner, who might have oh, been on the yeah. Style Council tour when you were in Australia. I can't remember if she was part of the band then. I'm not sure. I don't believe she was. Okay. But she obviously was part of the Style Council, um, yeah. also part of Weller's solo band. Nice little connection. Helen Turner was on um, in that band in one of those albums on the reissues that you wrote liner notes for as well. Doll by Doll, what was special about them from your angle? Yeah, I, it was well, it was it was this one guy, Jackie Levin, who was a big um, burly um, Scottish guy, very poetic speaker. He was a just a very impressive character in, in every respect. I'd met him out of the enemy, and he had this group called Doll by Doll, who were very fierce. They were, they were kind of psychedelic, so they didn't fit the time. They were as aggressive as any punk band you could mention, but their musical palette was broader, and they were a bit older than the punk people. Actually, they were about the same age, but they weren't pretending to be his youngest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jackie, Jackie was very much his own man, and um, he was also very druggy, which made him tricky to deal with. But he gave all that up, you know, actually became um, very active in um, drug addiction charities and so forth. And then he had a very long career 
as a solo artist, produced a wealth of uh, phenomenally uh, great music. He sadly passed away um, just a couple of years ago, but uh, he was somebody I kept in touch with throughout, which is probably how I got to do those sleeve notes for, uh, for his, re- his reissues. Yeah, he was a lovely guy. I miss him a lot. You mentioned retirement from music, journalism, writing for the magazines, newspapers, that kind of thing. But in terms of books, you're not, are you done now? Is that it? Are we, I don't know. I might, um, I might write another book. Um, I, I could do that if, if, if an idea occurs to me that I'm sufficiently um, enthused by because some um, books also are actually much harder work than they look, as I discovered to my dismay when I, when I first... I've done about six or seven books now. You've got to really, really enjoy the subject, you know, because you're stuck with the subject for two years or something, almost to the exclusion of being able to think about anything else. One of the great things about journalism is that you can't get too bored by anything because you're always on to the next thing you know you, you, you might work on a big feature for a week or something but that's as long as you ever spend on one thing then you're on to something else so you've got this constant constant variety it's kaleidoscopic um, that was good um, I still do stuff for people subbing sub-editing uh, editorial edit consultancy and things most recently I did um, McCartney had this big two-volume book called Lyrics I've got it here it's oh, like, what, oh my god what an amazing piece yes. of work that is god yeah well I had to read it about five times in quick succession to look for factual errors and um, typos and all that kind of thing. Um, but uh, it was a great. It was actually during lockdown. Come to think of it, it was a very nice way to, uh, to spend <laughs> lockdown, you know, immersed in the memory of uh, Paul McCartney and having to gently point out bits where his memory wasn't <laughs> but absolutely perfectly. But it did. I, I say that and there are very few. Uh, life is packed with incidents as his has been. You can be forgiven for getting a couple of dates mixed up along the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, the, the amount of memories he, that are there, I mean, you think as well, that must have just been absolute chaos at points where it's like, it's like I mean, talk, you talk Beatlemania. Half the time, we wouldn't even know where they were. Surely they're being whisked around from here, you know, here to everywhere, you know? Yes, absolutely. Um, I often found that with him and um, he would remember lots of incidents, but he didn't have a timeline for them. His memories are like uh, Polaroids that he's thrown into a big suitcase. They're all just jumbled up uh, inside this suitcase. <laughs> and he can open it up and pick out a Polaroid um, and look at it and he can tell you a story about that. But he relies on the people you know like me or mark lewis and to to assemble it all and put it into uh, put it all into shape love it i love it hey look man this has been so lovely chatting with you paul i've really enjoyed it i've got two final questions for you before you go okay so you are allowed one paul weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the style council <laughs> your face your face the style council or paul weller solo just the one what are you gonna go with okay well there's one that does mean a lot to me, actually, and it will do it to a lot of people. It's called uh, you're, the, uh, you know, you're the Best Thing. The reason is um, it came out in 1984 when my wife and I had our first child, our eldest son. And this song was, you know, on repeat on the on the radio at that point. And um, so the two things fused in my mind, this baby, our first baby, and You're the Best Thing that ever happened to me, playing on the radio. And um, so that's corny as it sounds. That's, that, would be my, that would be my pitch. I'm welling up, man. I'm welling up. <laughs> oh, how lovely. <laughs> um, final question. Okay, so the purpose of this podcast, Paul, is to hear stories from people like yourself who've had these connections with Mr. Weller, the Jam, the Style Council solo, hear your stories. But I've got to be honest, really, the point of the podcast is for me to get to interview Paul Weller. It's something I never managed when I was a radio presenter. And I gave up that career over 10 years ago. And that was my one big regret, never getting to interview Paul. Obviously, you've done it on many, many occasions, right? So you'll have bits of advice for me, I'm sure, if this happens. But I've literally created a podcast and we're now into, is this the year number three? This is year number three of this thing, right? To get an interview with Paul Weller. That's the sole purpose of this thing, right? <laughs> so if it happens, Paul, what should I ask him? And also, any advice? Um, I don't know. He's not, in the old days, it was quite simple. You know, you each had a, a, a pint of beer in your hand and you sort of took it from there. Because he doesn't do things that way. Yeah, I, I get that. Does he still smoke? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's the you one know, vice that he's not, he's not he got rid of. such an intensive, uh, intensive smoker. I, I probably smoked when I first met him in the very early days. I feel like it's the kind of thing also where you feel like you're going to, you have to smoke if you're with him, probably, right? I'll probably, I'll probably even for the podcast, I'd be like, I'm, I'm going to have to have a cigarette because this is, otherwise, how are we going to get a connection? You know? I don't know. If I did him again, maybe I'd start up again. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think getting an interview with him is not easy, I guess, nowadays. But uh, if he's decided to do it, I mean, he's, uh, he's a lot more relaxed about, you know, if he's decided he wants to do an interview, then he's got to go there and he's got to talk, you know, he's got to make it a pleasant social occasion, I think. That's the impression I get when I read his interviews these days. And that wasn't always the case. Like you 
say. No. So if you're thinking about no, like no. 95, 2005, much, much easier than the jam days, the Star Council days, right? Absolutely, yes. He was very, very um, suspicious. And um, I think he thought it was all the game that was being framed, um, rigged, you know, and not in his favour. One last thing, one interview I didn't do with him, and my wife and I had our first child. He was My wife went into labour on the day I was due to go in and interview. <laughs> Paul had decided he would be interviewed by the enemy, but it was going to be a board meeting. Everybody had to wear suits. He wants to be interviewed by four different journalists at once, and everybody had to wear a suit on a shirt and tie, and we sit around a boardroom table. <laughs> anyway, I did have a suit somewhere in my, the back of my wardrobe, but then my wife went into labour, so I didn't. <laughs> Tony did Parsons went along and a few other people, I think. Oh, so the, other, so the board meeting happened? Was, that was Paul just trying to set the terms of the engagement in his own way, you know, for once. <laughs> I didn't know. I'm going to have to dig out and see if I can find that interview. Oh, yeah. <laughs> amazing. amazing. Early enemy, early 1984. Okay, I'll dig into that. And is there anything you'd like to know? Is there anything like if you could interview him now that you'd, you'd want to ask a question of? I don't really. Um, I, I don't miss interviewing people. I'm glad that I did interview all those people people but now I, I i love the fact i can just um i can just sit back and, <laughs> sit back and read it yeah <laughs> and i don't have to understand it i don't have to have theories about it i can i mean those three out i keep i mentioned them before but um the, the three albums he brought out in pretty quick succession um they're, they're all so different and so distinctive you know all you can ask him is something that's just too it just sounds too dumb to ask you know you just you just find yourself saying how do you do it? <laughs> Which is just, it's just too dumb a question to me to, be, <laughs> to ask. But sometimes you just look at people and think, how the hell do you do it? You know, it's just amazing. Paul, thank you so much for your time. I love chatting pleasure. with you. Really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Dan. My thanks once again to Paul DeNoyer for joining me on the podcast. Head to my website right now for the show notes, including Hit the Road with the Style Council. You can read all of that interview down under from the Hit magazine, plus trips to Nomis and Amsterdam with Weller as well, all in the show notes for this podcast, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Plus, you can find out details of Paul's books that I mentioned, In the City, A Celebration of London Music, plus Conversations with Paul McCartney. All the details on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Just head to the show notes for this episode. And whilst you're there, you can check out our merch in our store, our official podcast mug. And if you fancy buying a virtual coffee, you can do exactly that as well. My thanks to the following people who have done that over the past week. Mike Steer, hello to you, sir. Hi to Stephen Cartwright. Hi, Stephen. Hello to Smeg from the 829 Club. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hi to Jen. Hello, Stu Burns. Hi to Jane, the jam tart with a heart. Hi to Nick Keane. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee as well. You can get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or if you fancy searching me out on Facebook or Instagram, just hit us up. Search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.